Chasers, the podcast for people who really fancy a good story. I'm Emily. And I'm Rebecca. And today we are living very much in the spirit of Infatuated. We have two books that centre around art and friendship. Um, And we also have a weird amount of coded messages in flowers. (laughs) Which isn't really in the brand description, but I feel like it goes. And wasn't intentional, but feels somehow like it was. Emily, what are you infatuated with this week? I am infatuated with A Little Life by Hanya Yanagihara. Uh, It's little. Yeah. (laughs) 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 So this came out in 2015 and it is 720 pages. Fucking hell. So it's pretty hefty. Normally we try and like summarise books in our own words, but I'm actually just going to read the blurb of this one just because it's very good at making this very sprawling book concise fair i do i was thinking that the other day you know i was like reading the blurb of a book and i was like you know someone's been paid an awful lot of money to summarize this book yeah i'm just out here botching it every week i know i don't know why we don't just read the blurbs but i feel like we made it an unwritten rule for ourselves (laughs) that we somehow have to summarize it ourselves uh anyway so yeah this is the blurb for a little life when four classmates from a small massachusetts college moved to new york to make their way they're broke, adrift, and buoyed only by their friendship and ambition. There is kind, handsome Willem, an aspiring actor. JB, a quick-witted, sometimes cruel painter pursuing fame in the art world. Malcolm, a frustrated architect at a prominent firm. And withdrawn, brilliant, enigmatic Jude, who serves as their centre of gravity. Over the decades, their relationships deepen and darken, tinged by addiction, success and pride. Yet their greatest challenge, each comes to realise, is Jude himself. By midlife, a terrifyingly talented lawyer, yet an increasingly broken man, his mind and body scarred by an unspeakable childhood and haunted by a degree of trauma that he fears he will not only be unable to overcome, but that will define his life forever. In a novel of extraordinary intelligence and heart, Yanagihara has fashioned a masterful depiction of heartbreak and a dark and haunting examination of the tyranny of experience and memory. Well. Mm-hmm. That sounds like it deserves 729 pages. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, this episode has taken me a while to write. Um, I actually could have talked about it last season but I wanted to sit with it a bit longer because there are very mixed opinions about this book. It was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize in 2015 and shortlisted for the Bailey's Women's Prize for Fiction in 2016, among many other awards. So it's very critically acclaimed, Mm. but it has also been referred to by some people as torture porn. Okay. So as you can perhaps gather from the blurb, Jude in particular goes through a lot of trauma and that trauma is not brushed over. You read every single detail of it. And I would say, like, the heaviest, if you want to call it that, is, like, sexual abuse in adulthood and childhood and self-harm. And he also has debilitating injuries to his legs, which worsen throughout his life, so he also has to come to terms with being disabled. Right. So I'm not going to read much about any of those topics today because... It's just a bit of a bummer, yeah, so I'm not going to do that. I don't want to bring down the vibe. Um, but I will say, if you want to read this book and do have certain triggers, you may want to look those up first. Yeah, before I read some quotes out, I thought I would just kind of give my brief 
thoughts on it because like I said I've sat with it for a while to figure out what my thoughts are <laughs> and in my opinion I don't think I can class it as torture porn. I won't lie I cried a lot while reading the book and I did make jokes like oh my god this book hurts mm. so much but in reality I cried because it was moving and not because it hurt me. Like I can understand because of the nature of the story that if you have a connection to some of the situations like it could be a tough read but personally even though a lot of the book's very sad there are very heartwarming moments that I feel like are meant to be the resounding message of it like I think you're supposed to read those moments and think you know even if your life's awful even if you're struggling with mental health issues there are people around you who love you and who want to help you Mm. like that's how I read it anyway so yeah, I guess what I want to say about A Little Life is it's very compelling and unforgettable and it's not the kind of book I would read frequently, but I'm glad I did read it because even though it's like, maybe sounds like the wrong word, I enjoyed it. <laughs> I suppose I don't recommend it to everyone, but I do recommend it, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, that does totally make sense. Okay, so on to the analysis. <laughs> so... Yeah, this book spans decades, which is why I think the length of it is really great. I've said this before about long books, but often people are put off by a really long book, um, whereas I think in some cases it's really great getting to immerse yourself in a world for a long time. Mm-hmm. And with this one in particular, you really get a sense of how long Jude has struggled and how it's affected Willem, JB and Malcolm and other people in his life almost like a kind of butterfly effect Mm. and I don't think it would be as effective if the book wasn't long. Yeah I've I've kind of rethought that recently because I have struggled with long books for a long time and it's not that I can't read a long book it's Mm -hmm. just that it wasn't what I was enjoying Mm -hmm. but I think I've kind of rediscovered like a, a love for like a really deep story yeah and like a deep world. Yeah and it's not something I want to read every time I read a book. No. But like I do think a long book has its place. <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah, the the points of view in this book change between the four guys, which is all like third person narration, but sometimes we also get narration from a character called Harold, and his parts of the book are essentially a monologue directed to someone who isn't really named at first, but you gather is Willem. Harold was an old professor and mentor of Jude's he becomes a father figure to him Mm. and he actually even adopts Jude as an adult which I don't feel like is a spoiler to say. Harold had a son Jacob who died as a child and so you have this really beautiful relationship formed out of a man who's lost a son and a young man who has no parents and I wanted to read out this passage because it's equally sad and lovely. (laughs) (laughs) You asked me once when I knew that he was for me and I told you that I had always known. But that wasn't true, and I knew it even as I said it. I said it because it sounded pretty, like something someone might say in a book or a movie, and because we were both feeling so wretched and helpless, and because I thought if I said it, we both might feel better about the situation before us, the situation that we perhaps had been capable of preventing. Perhaps not. But at any rate, hadn't. This was in the hospital. The first time, I should say. I know you remember. You had flown in from Colombo that morning, hopscotching across cities and countries and hours so that you landed a full day before you left. But I want to be accurate now. 
I want to be accurate both because there is no reason not to be and because I should be. I've always tried to be. I always try to be. Not sure where to begin. Maybe with some nice words, although they are also true words. I liked you right away. You were 24 when we met, which would have made me 47. Jesus. I thought you were unusual. Later, he'd speak of your goodness, but he never needed to explain it to me, for I already knew you were. It was the first summer the group of you came up to the house, and it was such a strange weekend for me, and for him as well. For me, because in you four I saw who and what Jacob might have been, and for him because he had only known me as his teacher, and he was suddenly seeing me in my shorts and wearing my apron as I scooped clams off the grill and arguing with you three about everything. Once I stopped seeing Jacob's face in all of yours, though, I was able to enjoy the weekend, in large part because you three seemed to enjoy it so much. You saw nothing strange in the situation. You were boys who assumed that people would like you, not from arrogance, but because people always had, and you had no reason to think that, if you were polite and friendly, then that politeness and friendliness might not be reciprocated. He, of course, had every reason not to think that, though I wouldn't discover that until later. Then, I watched him at mealtimes, noticing how, during particularly raucous debates, he would sit back in his seat, as if physically leaning out of the ring and observe all of you. How easily you challenged me without fear of provoking me. How thoughtlessly you reached across the table to serve yourselves more potatoes, more zucchini, more steak. How you asked for what you wanted and received it. The thing I remember most vividly from that weekend is a small thing. We were walking, you and he and Julia and I, down that little path lined with birches that led to the lookout. Back then it was a narrow thoroughway, do you remember that? It was only later that it became dense with trees. I was with him, and you and Julia were behind us. You were talking about, oh, I don't know, insects, wildflowers? You two always found something to discuss. You both loved being outdoors, both loved animals. I loved this about both of you, even though I couldn't understand it. And then you touched his shoulder and moved in front of him and knelt and retied one of his shoelaces that had come undone and then fell back in step with Julia. It was so fluid, a little gesture, a step forward, a fold onto bended knee, a retreat back toward her side. It was nothing to you. You didn't even think about it. You never even paused in your conversation. You were always watching him, but you all were. You took care of him in a dozen small ways. I saw all of this over a few days, but I doubt you would remember this particular incident. But while you were doing it, he looked at me, and the look on his face, I still cannot describe it, other than in that moment I felt something crumble inside me, like a tower of damp sand built too high, for him and for you, and for me as well. And in his face, I knew my own would be echoed. The impossibility of finding someone to do such a thing for another person, so unthinkingly, so gracefully. When I looked at him, I understood, for the first time since Jacob died, what people meant when they said someone was heartbreaking, that something could break your heart. I'd always thought it mawkish, but in that moment I realised that it might have been mawkish, but it was also true. And that, I suppose, was when I knew. Oh my god. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So my favourite relationships in this book are between Willem and Jude and Harold and Jude. Like, the mix of those three people. And hopefully you can see why. (laughs) 
Uh, Willem and Harold have nothing but love for Jude, but because of his past, he always views their help as something they're doing out of pity. And mm-hmm. it just breaks my heart. Oh, man. <laughs> I love how he said, like, the look on his face, I can't describe it, but you know. Yeah. Like, you can, you know the, like, mix of, like, resentment mm-hmm. and, like, biting your tongue and everything mm-hmm. that, that would have been on his face. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and so I'm going to jump ahead a few pages in the same monologue because I also like this bit Uh, so this is still Harold speaking I've never been one of those people I know you aren't either who feels that the love one has for a child is somehow a superior love one more meaningful, more significant and grander than any other I didn't feel that before Jacob and I didn't feel that after but it is a singular love because it is a love whose foundation is not physical attraction or pleasure or intellect, but fear. You have never known fear until you have a child, and maybe that is what tricks us into thinking that it's more magnificent, because the fear itself is more magnificent. Every day, your first thought is not, I love him, but how is he? The world overnight rearranges itself into an obstacle course of terrors. I would hold him in my arms and wait to cross the street and would think how absurd it was that my child, that any child, could expect to survive this life. It seemed as improbable as the survival of one of those late spring butterflies. You know, those little white ones. I sometimes saw wobbling through the air, always just millimetres away from smacking itself against the windshield. And let me tell you two other things I learned. The first is that it doesn't matter how old that child is, or when or how he became yours. Once you decide to think of someone as your child, something changes, and everything you've previously enjoyed about them, everything you've previously felt for them, is preceded first by that fear. It's not biological, it's something extra biological, less a determination to ensure the survival of one genetics code, and more a desire to prove oneself inviolable to the universe faints and challenges, to triumph over the things that want to destroy what's yours. The second thing is this. When your child dies, you feel everything you'd expect to feel. Feeling so well documented by so many others that I won't even bother to list them here, except to say that everything that's written about mourning is all the same, and it's all the same for a reason, because there is no real deviation from the text. Sometimes you feel more of one thing and less of another, and sometimes you feel them out of order, and sometimes you feel them for a longer time or a shorter time, but the sensations are always the same. But here's what no one says. When it's your child, a part of you, a very tiny but nonetheless unignorable part of you also feels relief. Because finally, the moment you've been expecting, been dreading, been preparing yourself for since the day you became a parent has come. Ah, you tell yourself, it's arrived. Here it is. And after that, you have nothing to fear again. So, (laughs) (laughs) my mic is on. (laughs) So I quite like when stories are cyclical, Mm. but it does break my heart that Harold's luck, if you can call it that, with both his biological son and his adoptive son is so poor. Mm. But yeah, I don't want to dwell too much on the sad stuff, so I'm going to move on. I just could not read that because it's so good. That is like... Do you know why I like that? Is because 
you know that it's true. Like, I'm not a parent, but I know that that's true. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I love that. Okay, so for a change of pace... <sighs> Thank God. Let's talk about art. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> okay, so in this group of friends, we have an artist, a painter, and an architect, and an actor. And what I love about this book is that you really believe that that's what they are. So we've spoken before about Taylor Jenkins Reid and how her books make you feel like they're real people because she's great at getting into the head of her characters and thinking how they would feel. Like you kind of talked about it in Malibu Rising when it's like a surfer talking about surfing. Yeah, she gets into their occupation. Yeah, and so that's what this book is like as well. It's really fleshed out the fictional world with like real world details that make it feel real and yeah like the occupation and all the like feelings that go into the occupation and I also think by having artistic or creative people surrounding Jude means that they bring all this beauty to his life and which also lifts the book a bit in turn so I thought I would read a quote from very early on in the book from JB's perspective he's the artist and he's basically trying to work out what his big project after finishing college is going to be. Okay. He had a sketch pad with him, as he always did, and when Jude sat down at the card table to chop onions, they had to do all their prep work on the table because there was no counter space in the kitchen, he began drawing him almost unthinkingly. From the kitchen came a great banging and the smell of smoking olive oil, and when he went in to discover Willem whacking at a piece of butterfly chicken with the bottom of an omelette pan, his arm raised over the meat as if to spank it, his expression oddly peaceful, he drew him as well. <laughs> he... <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> Willem's my favourite. <laughs> he wasn't sure then that he was really working toward anything. But the next weekend, when they all went out to Faux Viet Hong, he brought along one of Ali's old cameras and shot the three of them eating, and then, later, walking up the street in the snow. They were moving particularly slowly in deference to Jude, because the sidewalks were slippery. He saw them lined up in the camera's viewfinder. Malcolm, Jude and Willem. Malcolm and Willem on either side of Jude, close enough, he knew, having been in the position himself to catch him if he skidded, but not so close that Jude would suspect that they were anticipating his fall. They had never had a conversation that they would do this, he realised. They would simply begun it. He took the picture. What are you doing, JB? asked Jude, at the same time as Malcolm complained. Cut it out, JB. And I'm just going to skip ahead a couple paragraphs. And they were at a party now. Okay. <clears throat> Normally at parties he grabbed or was grabbed by a group of people and spent the night as a nuclei for a variety of three or four sims, bounding from one to the next, gathering the gossip, starting harmless rumours, pretending to share confidences, getting others to tell him who they hated by divulging hatreds of his own. But this night, he travelled the room, alert and purposeful, and largely sober, taking pictures of his three friends as they moved in their own patterns, unaware that he was trailing them. At one point, a couple of hours in, he found them by the window with just one another, Jude saying something and the other two leaning in close to him, and then in the next moment the three of them leaning back and all laughing, and although for a moment he felt both wistful and slightly jealous, he was also triumphant, 
as he had gotten both shots. Tonight, I am a camera, he told himself, and tomorrow I will be JB again. In a way, he had never enjoyed a party more, and no one seemed to notice his deliberate rovings except for Richard, who, as the four of them were leaving an hour later to go uptown, Malcolm's parents were in the country and Malcolm thought he knew where his mother hid her weed, gave him unexpectedly sweet old man clap on the shoulder. Working on something. I think so. Good for you. The next day, he sat at his computer looking at the night's images on the screen. The camera wasn't a great one, and it had hazed every picture with a smoky yellow light, which, along with his poor focusing skills, had made everyone warm and rich and slightly soft-edged, as if they'd been shot through a tumbler full of whiskey. He stopped at a close-up of Willem's face, of him smiling at someone, a girl, no doubt, off-camera, and at the one of Jude and Phaedra on the sofa. Jude was wearing a bright navy sweater that JB could never figure out belonged to him or to Willem, as both of them wore it so much, and Phaedra was wearing a wool dress the shade of port, and she was leaning her head towards his, and the dark of her hair made his look lighter, and the nubbly teal of the sofa beneath them made them both appear shining and jewel-like, like colours just licked and glorious, their skin delicious. They were colours anyone would want to paint, and so he did sketching out the scene first in his book and pencil, and then again on stiffer board and watercolours, and then finally on canvas and acrylics. That had been four months ago, and he had now almost eleven paintings completed, an astonishing output for him, all of scenes from his friends' lives. There was Willem waiting to audition, studying the script a final time, the sole of one boot pressed against the sticky red wall behind him, and Jude at a play, his face half-shadowed, at the very second he smiled, getting that shot had almost gotten JB thrown out of the theatre. Malcolm sitting stiffly on a sofa a few feet away from his father, his back straight and his hands clenching his knees, the two of them watching a Buñuel film on television just out of frame. After some experimentation, he had settled on canvases the size of a standard C-print, 20 by 24 inches, all horizontally oriented, in which he imagined might someday be displayed in a long, snaking single layer, one that would wrap itself around a gallery's walls, each image following the next as fluidly as cells in a film strip. The renderings were realistic, but photorealistic. He had never replaced Ali's camera with a better one, and he tried to make each painting capture that gently fuzzed quality the camera gave everything, as if someone had patted away the top layer of clarity and left behind something kinder than the eye alone would see. In his insecure moments, he sometimes worried the project was too fey, too inward. This was where having representation really helped, if only to remind you that someone liked your work, though it was important or at the very least beautiful, but he couldn't deny the pleasure he got from it, the sense of ownership and contentment. At times he missed being part of the pictures himself. Here was a whole narrative of his friends' lives, his absence an enormous missing part, but he also enjoyed the godlike role he played. He got to see his friends differently, not just as appendages to his life, but as distinct characters inhabiting their own stories. He felt sometimes that he was seeing them for the first time, even after so many years of knowing them. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I thought you might like that. <laughs> I feel so inspired. I want to go and make something now. I know. And I just love the detail of it because it's a really simple idea that he just takes pictures of his friends and paints them. Mm. 
but the way that it's written just shows how much care and attention he puts into his art and like I can see those paintings mm-hmm. like I can picture like the slight blurriness and all the warm colours like seen through a tumbler of whiskey what a good image yeah a really good one also that line that was like leaving behind something kinder mm. mm-hmm. oh <laughs> So yeah, I also wanted to read a quote about Willem's career as an actor because, again, I just really love the detail that's put into it. One of the first movies Willem ever starred in was a project called Life After Death. The film was a take on the story of Orpheus and Eurydice and was told from alternating perspectives and shot by two different, highly regarded directors. Willem played O, a young musician in Stockholm whose girlfriend had just died and who had begun having delusions that when he played certain melodies, she would appear beside him. An Italian actress, Fosta, played E, O's deceased girlfriend. The joke of the movie was that while O stared and wept and mourned for his love from Earth, E was having a terrific time in hell, where she could, finally, stop behaving. Stop looking after her querulous mother and her harassed father. Stop listening to the whining of the client she tried to help as a lawyer for the indigent but who never thanked her. Stop indulging her self-absorbed friend's endless patter. Stop trying to cheer her sweet but perpetually morose boyfriend. Instead, she was in the underworld, a place where the food was plentiful and where the trees were always sagging with fruit, where she could make catty comments about other people without consequence, a place where she even attracted the attention of Hades himself, who is being played by a large, muscular Italian actor named Raphael. Life after death had divided the critics. Some of them loved it. They loved how the film said so much about two different cultures, fundamentally different approach to life itself. O's story was shot by a famous Swedish director in sombre greys and blues. E's story was told by an Italian director known for his aesthetic exuberance while at the same time offering glints of gentle self-parody. They loved its tonal shifts. They loved how tenderly and unexpectedly it offered solace to the living. But others had hated it. They thought it jarring in both timbre and palette. They hated its tone of ambivalent satire. They hated the musical number that E participates in while in hell, even as her poor O plinks away above ground on his chilly, spare compositions. But although the debate over the movie, which practically no one in the States saw, but about which everyone had an opinion, was impassioned, there was unanimity about at least one thing. <laughs> the two leads, Willem Ragnarsson and Foster Sanfilippo, were fantastic and would go on to have great careers. Over the years, life after death had been reconsidered and rethought and reevaluated and restudied, and by the time Willem was in his mid-40s, the movie had become officially beloved a favourite among its director's oeuvres, a symbol of the kind of collaborative, irreverent, fearless and yet playful filmmaking that far too few people seemed interested in doing any longer. Willem had been in such a diverse collection of films and plays that he had always been interested in hearing what people named as their favourite, and then reporting his findings back to Willem. The younger male partners and associates at Rose and Pritchard liked the spy movies, for example. The women liked duets, the Temps, many of them actors themselves, liked The Poisoned Apple. J.B. liked The Unvanquished. Richard liked The Stars Over St. James. Harold and Julia liked The Lucina Detectives and Uncle Vanya. 
and film students, who had been the least shy about approaching Willem in restaurants or on the street, invariably liked life after death. It's some of Donizetti's best work, they'd say, confidently, or it must have been amazing to be directed by Bergson. Willem had always been polite. I agree, he'd say, and the film student would beam. It was. It was amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I wish I could see that film. (laughs) Me too! Because obviously, love the Greek mythology, Mm. but I also love the idea that, like, which is very true, that different people connect with different roles that an actor plays. And yeah, I would definitely be one of those film students. Oh, 100%. <laughs> like, like, I would, I would love, watch that. I would love the musical number in hell. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, obviously I'm not going to spoil anything here, but this passage comes at a very interesting point. Uh, it's a gut punch. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> and because we love a quote about friendship here, I obviously had to pick one out to end on. Um, so this is just a little one. It's a paragraph from Willem's perspective. Lately, he had been wondering if codependence was such a bad thing. He took pleasure in his friendships, and it didn't hurt anyone, so who cared if it was codependent or not? And anyway, how was friendship any more codependent than a relationship? Why was it admirable when you were 27, but creepy when you were 37? Why wasn't friendship as good as a relationship? Why wasn't it even better? It was two people who remained together, day after day, bound not by sex or physical attraction or money or children or property, but only by the shared agreement to keep going, the mutual dedication to a union that could never be codified. Friendship was witnessing another's slow drip of miseries and long bouts of boredom and occasional triumphs. It was feeling honoured by the privilege of getting to be present for another person's most dismal moments and knowing that you could be dismal around him in return. Oh! (laughs) So it's kind of dim and glim, but it's also very sweet. (laughs) I love that. Do you know what's really nice is, like, I feel like when... Because realistically, I'm not going to read all the books that you talk about on this podcast Mm -hmm. because I can't read that fast. Yeah. I feel like it is like a little party where I get to like go and meet all of these people <laughs> and then I just get to boost again but I'm like oh I met that person for a little while. Yeah yeah <laughs> so yeah there you go those are some moments from a little life that weren't wholly depressing. Yeah this is one I'd really like to hear people's opinions on if they've read it because obviously like I said there's a bit of controversy around it and I just hope everyone understands that I do know why people don't like this book or why they maybe found it like a hard read but I don't like that term because yeah I mean I took a while to get through it but that's just because it's not the kind of book that you fly through mm-hmm. and I don't think that's a bad thing like you kind of have to soak in all the decades of detail but that doesn't mean it's a slog because as you can tell the writing's very beautiful and mm-hmm. um, so it is very enjoyable in the way that like a sad book can be enjoyable but yeah that's a little life I really liked those passages yeah I think I don't know it's hard like I think you would like it like it's just I know it's just not the kind of book that you would like really necessarily pick up well see I think it maybe is it's just like it doesn't look like the kind of book it doesn't look like it yet but but it seems very like poetic and like literary fiction yeah that's kind of my my jam yeah so I think it's like a like a one day Mm. you'll read it yeah it can live on my list for a while <laughs> yeah. um, until I'm ready. Yeah. 
Okay, so what are you infatuated with this week? I am infatuated with The Ophelia Girls by Jane Healy. Now, as you know, this was a random Waterstones purchase. Um, (laughs) You were there. And the cover just caught my eye because it's very pretty. It's all flowers and gold leaf and it's very like, what's that called? Like Raphael type Mm, um, illustrations. But the reason that I picked it up is actually that we had just, well, you had just talked about The Lamplighters Mm. by Emma Stonex and it's her review quote that's on the front Ah. Uh, she says it's potent and mesmerizing which I would agree with and I just saw it and I thought well you you know that book that you talked about sounds good if she (laughs) she likes this one then this one must be all right and I'm very glad that I went with that logic because I loved it Hmm. so it came out this year and it follows the story of two summers one in the 90s of 17 year old Maeve who is recovering from cancer and she's resting at her mother's childhood home in the English countryside. Okay. And the other summer, which is like juxtaposed, is in the 70s, and it is her mother's summer in the same house when she was Maeve's age. Right, okay. And she was one of the so-called Ophelia girls. Mm. Now, it's got like loads of secrets and twists and turns, and it's got a mystery at the heart of it of what happened that summer in mm-hmm. the 70s. And it's very like, I'm trying to think, like the word opulent, I want to say it like it's very pretty um, and tragic and I read it in three days which even like actual page turners I don't read in three days yeah it's very unlike you yeah so (laughs) I'm just like it's very addictive once you get started (laughs) so I think that my favorite thing about this novel is that it's written in the spirit that its characters would have told the story so like it's really enthusiastic. It's almost infatuated <laughs> with its own story. Mm-hmm. There's like no sparing of any details. And even when the plot seems really like, far-fetched, you suspend your disbelief because it's told with like gusto. Yeah, okay. And that really aligns with its subject, which is the obsessive, fandomy nature of teenage girls and how wholeheartedly they invested they can get in mm-hmm. their own fantasies mm-hmm. and whatever and we kind of get a mission statement for that in the epigraph because i know that we love an epigraph oh, and this book's epigraph contains two quotes one is about girlhood which the novel is about and one is about photography which is the plot that it uses okay so i will read them out the first one is so much of my girlhood was fictive i lived in my mind i made up the girl i thought i was by mm. jenny zang Mm. And the other one is from our man, Roland Barthes. (laughs) When we define the photograph as a motionless image, this does not mean only that the figure it represents does not move. It means that they are anaesthetised and fastened down like butterflies. Oh, that's a good one. This made me miss film studies so much. Yeah. I forgot he existed. No, so did I. And then I read, like, I literally read it and I was like, I've read that before. And yeah. then I looked at the thing and I was like, ah, oh, it's Roland. We've written essays on that man. Yes. Many an essay. Him and uh, Laura, what's her face? Laura Mulvey. Laura Mulvey, yeah. King and Queen of Film Studies. Anyway, <laughs> we get it straight away in the prologue, which is told from the mother Helen's point of view. It's told in the past tense, which will be important later. But I'm just going to read the prologue because I think that those quotes you can just see come to life here. Mm -hmm. 
That summer of 73, they called us the Ophelia Girls because we dressed up like Shakespeare's ill-fated heroine or our own teenage versions of her. In silk slips from jumble sails and long floral dresses, we ran up our mother's sewing machines and laid out in the frigid waters of the river in the woods, taking turns to stand on the mossy bank and take photos of each other, looking beautiful and tragic. We liked the way we looked and the way we felt in the water. Our bodies held up and cradled, skin sharp with the cold, the stones under our backs shifting with the current. We would take the deepest section of the river, sometimes wade over to help each other into the right positions or to plait hair, rearrange the way our dresses lay to make us look as beautiful as possible. Sometimes we would sink a little further under the surface until the lip of the water met over the end of our noses and hold our breaths until our cheeks ached. Eyes open or closed, arms curled or stretched, we left our platform shoes, our sandals, on the riverbank. We were 15, 16, 17 then, and our families were summering at the cottages in the hamlet on the hill above the woods in the English countryside. Our parents had been bemused at first with our obsession. The armfuls of flowers we picked or stole from the gardens, begged from the startled boy working at the florist, the outfits we sewed feverishly into the night, the damp clothes we left in heaps on our floors. But then they grew concerned. We were obsessed, they said, foolish, even hysterical. We laughed at them, at the name they'd given us, when we tripped up through the fields after dark with our knees blue and shivering, coltish limbs, our sodden dresses leaving a sticky trail behind us in the dry grass, petals crushed underfoot. We smiled when we huddled together under the shade of a tree to open the packets of developed photographs or watch our bodies bud and bloom on Polaroids held in sweating hands. We quivered with a kind of giddy joy when we lay out in the river, our dresses waterborne, lace and satin and polyester moulding to our skin, rings tugged loose by the gentle current, hair like weeds, flowers slipping from our grasp and floating downstream. Oh, it's so pretty. I know. It's like the whole passage is a photo. Yeah, yeah. And this is like off topic, but the amount of water words mm. in this novel is astounding. Like, <laughs> I think this is maybe why Emma Stonex liked it so much. Just she kind of did the same. Yeah, she did the yeah. same thing. But like, you'd think that you'd run out of ways to describe water, mm. but she never does. Yeah. But anyway, I think here you can see the kind of self consciousness of the Ophelia girls. Like they're given this nickname, and they just run with it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't embarrass them. Like it might with other people that aren't teenage girls. Yeah, yeah. It kind of propels them, and that just reminds me so much of fandom culture. It's like mm. it's like it's smug about itself. Yeah, but it's yeah. too wholesome for you to be angry at it. <laughs> yeah, it's just like it's so harmless. <laughs> it can be smug about itself, but also an incredible introduction to the juxtaposition of mother and daughter happens here because right after this prologue, which is in the past tense and focused on Ophelia, who we know is this famously dying woman, and she's always dying, she's never dead. Mm. The first chapter then begins with Maeve in the present tense, and the first line is, Maeve is on her bedroom floor remembering what it was like to die. Mm. Which is just very satisfying. Yeah. Uh, It's a very satisfying first line of a chapter one. Mm -hmm. But I'm not going to read the rest of that, because (laughs) it's not relevant. I've got another passage from Helen near the beginning of the novel when she's explaining how the Ophelia girls started Mm -hmm. and like quite cleverly the lead into this one 
to like the past tense regret of this one is a present tense guilt, which I didn't even realise until I reread it because it's so clever. Okay. Oh, it's just so well done. It's like the whole novel's so watery because it's like the emotions flow. Yeah. And, oh, so good! <laughs> When Maeve was sick and home from the hospital, it wasn't enough to stand outside her door. I used to crouch by her bed and watch her, note the shadows under her eyes and her laboured breaths. Sometimes Alex found me there in the morning, slumped on the floor in a restless doze. You'll tire yourself out, he used to say. She's fine. She's fine. A phrase meant to comfort, but one that only ever made me want to protest that she's not. She's not fine. And I didn't notice it when it first began. I didn't listen. When she said she was tired and breathless, I called it growing pains and I told her she was fine. The leaking tap is in the guest bathroom, the one so narrow that you can sit on the toilet and reach the sink and the bath at the same time. Now, as I stand in front of the sink in the dark, I cup a hand under each tap to find the culprit, or as if I'm waiting for some kind of blessing, I think. For a moment, nothing, and then a cold drop in my right palm that rolls in the inside of my wrist. In the shadowed mirror, I am ageless, unrecognisable. I could be her, my teen self, awake at night with giddy thoughts, restless with sadness, wishing to be anywhere but here. It could be the start of that summer and I might be able to stop it happening before it did. I was the one who took the first photograph of a girl in the river and sometimes I think this means I am to blame for everything. It was a picture of Joan Summers. Joan Summers with her straight black hair and her watery blue eyes that looked eerie and old in some of the washed out photographs. She used to wear a particular stripy halter neck dress she'd bought on the King's Road that she had shrunk in a hot wash to show off her knickers and had a reputation for being a good time girl. If my mother had been alive, she might have called her trouble, although maybe she wouldn't, not having any memories of my mother, not even the press of my baby cheek against her woolen jumper or the touch of her soft palm on my forehead. I don't know what she was really like. Joan's parents were drama teachers and later we would use their theatre programmes, the covers and illustrations in their books on Hamlet, along with the reproductions of Millet's Ophelia in my art books to align our own visions with that of Shakespeare's heroine. But before that, our inspiration had been more primal, innate, as if a drowning girl lived inside each of us waiting to be discovered. It was me and Joan and one of the other girls that day, though who exactly I forget, Maybe because by the end of our time in the river we became in some ways interchangeable, as if the water had softened the delineations between us. And we were walking along the river bank in the sun, singing a James Taylor song with drooping daisy chains around our thin wrists. We threw sticks in the river to race, and when hers got stuck under a mossy root, I dared John to go in and get it. That day she was wearing a white, frothy peasant blouse, and as she swore at us and clambered into the water, to the other side of the river, the water made it billow out, turned it see-through so we could see the much-envied lacy brassiere she wore underneath. I had a camera with me. I remember thinking that that year was important, worth recording, as if our small teenage lives could be set against the whirlwind happening in London, New York, San Francisco, Vietnam. She turned around triumphantly when she'd retrieved the stick and saw me unclipping the camera case. Take a picture of this, she called, of me drowning in the river. And then she swooned back with a laugh, with a theatrical wave of her arm. And I thought, yes, yes, this. And something inside me trembled, bloomed. I crouched on the bank and Joan tipped her head back, stick forgotten and floating further downstream, 
her blouse bored up around her, her legs pale in the glittering green waters, the daisy chain joined by a fern frond that tangled round her throat. Afterwards, I pushed the camera into Joan's hands to take my turn, and all that first step into the river, the cold of the water, the stones store on my toes, could anything ever be sweeter than that? It looked calm from the bank, but a river isn't like a swimming pool. You don't slip easily into it and then lie placid. There's a current that wants to nudge you onwards, weeds and leaves and flotsam, stones and rocks underneath you, branches and roots like outstretched arms reaching towards you. The light on river water on a hot summer's day is blinding, brilliant in its patterns, the branches of the willows above dizzying in their detail as the lip of the water dances across your skin and the gurgling underwater world washes into your ears. It was then, I think, that I understood baptism, and it was then that my body first felt alive, my own. We didn't leave the river until we started chattering with the cold, until the sky grew dark with heavy clouds, and as we clambered through the woods, our clothes slapping against our prickling skin, we felt washed ashore on some strange new land. And when the photos were developed, when I cycled back from the village with the sealed packet, and the four of us sat underneath a tree with our mouths sticky from toffees twisted out of shiny wrappers, our legs crisscrossed over one another's, and we saw ourselves transformed by the lens in the film, the leaking light of the old camera like the golden light in the painting of a saint, like the summer sun blinding us, we felt a new thrum of power, of possibility. Oh, I like that. I loved the bit about... I've forgotten how she phrased it, but like how they all kind of like merge into like one person, because mm-hmm. that's very like dark academia, which clearly this book is kind of like in that vein. It's very like secret history, yeah. maybe villains vibes. That just that that idea. I have things to say about dark academia. Okay, in this book. <laughs> but I love like I've just noticed this there, but like even there, it's all a lot of this book is to do with paintings, old mm-hmm. paintings. And it's so religious all yeah, the way through that, yeah. and I hadn't actually noticed that, but like mm. it's really into its imagery. And I think, like, see, when I was reading this, the thing that I love about this is the thing that I didn't like in High Fidelity. Mm-hmm. You know, when he talked that bit where he was talking about pretending not to want to say I love you so that women feel like they've earned it, so that it's like a movie. Yeah. And like the explicit recognition and therefore deconstruction of the make-believe that we all do to make life feel more like fiction. Mm. In High Fidelity that attitude toward that seemed really sardonic mm-hmm. but here it's like unabashed but self-aware yeah. do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, She knows yeah. that it's happening and she's telling you like we all knew that this was a shared fiction Yeah, but she doesn't seem like angry about it. I wonder if it's like there seems to be a bit more like innocence or naivety in this book Mm -hmm. so like it doesn't come across as like I almost want to say manipulative the way that it's done in high fidelity yeah he's doing it for a result yeah like this is like a woman looking back on her teenage years yeah we all knew because it's it's kind of like that wendy thing as well like we've talked a lot about peter pan recently it's that thing where like wendy knows that this shouldn't be able to happen yeah but then it's happening Mm. So it's like that, you're on the cusp of, like, adulthood type Mm -hmm. thing. Oh, so good. (laughs) But one thing that's really lovely in this book, and it's similar to what you've just talked about, actually, with the art, is that it shows people being interested in things. Mm -hmm. Um, In this case, it's art and photography. So Helen, the mum, is a talented illustrator, and as we've seen, she gets into photography. 
Maeve is obsessed with art and galleries. Um, so this is a passage from Maeve's point of view where she's scrutinising her collection of pictures on her bedroom wall. Okay. Because that's what you do. Yes. After breakfast, Maeve returns to her room and lies on her bed, feeling her stomach gurgle. She turns her head to look at the wall of posters and postcards she put up in a brief manic burst her first week here because the tiny pattern of the old wallpaper was making her dizzy. <laughs> because she wanted to make this space hers and not her mother's. She might have continued and plastered the other walls too, but her mother had said, oh, that looks nice, when she came into the room the next day and it had soured the whole thing. Now Maeve's eyes trace the fashion editorials as slow bass beats throb through her head from her disc man. A woman in a dress with a long train sitting on a rearing horse. A woman lying on a pile of pastel mattresses, a modern sleeping beauty. Two women in white summer dresses in a field blanched yellow with light. A glamorous girl slumped next to a large perfume bottle with a man in a sharp suit frowning at her, his hand curled tightly around her upper arm. The pictures of actors and actresses cut out of magazines, the handful of photos of a young childhood that seems so far away, her on her father's shoulders, her with a toothy smile holding the twins in her lap, her in a too large tourist t-shirt frowning at the beach. And lastly, the images that have been on her mind recently, the postcards of paintings, mostly of women, Impressionist, Pre-Raphaelite, Renaissance. She bought the postcards on the trip the hospital school took to galleries. When her mother had taken her around art galleries as a child, she'd been bored, bought only pencils and colourful rubbers in the gift shop with the usual proffered 50p. But her trips with the raggle-taggle group of sick kids with their head wraps and wheelchairs and oxygen canisters and shuffling feet, had been glorious. There was something slightly enjoyable about being part of such a group, about the pity and curiosity they created among the other gallery goers. Here is your sick youth, Georgia, her best friend, muttered gleefully in her ear once as a woman gawped at them. Here are the ghouls and the ghosties you hide away. You too might get sick and die, she declared, making her thin arms shake as she pointed at an elderly man and Maeve muffled a laugh that hurt her chest. Sitting in front of the paintings then, at the Tate, at the National Gallery, or the sculptures and statues in the British Museum in the V&A, Maeve had an appreciation of their beauty that was agonisingly sincere. She had felt the contrast of her daily life, the fluorescent halls of the ward, the thick plastic bars of her bed, the ache in her body, set against the cool, marble-floored buildings with ceilings that soared like a cathedral, the rich gold of the frames and the wonders they encased, seascapes and picturesque ruins, women in every era of costume, Eden-like gardens, sunsets and sunrises, gods and goddesses, dresses of silk and lace and fur and samite. She had fallen a little in love too with the guides their teacher had arranged, in their tweed jackets, their black sheath dresses or old-fashioned cardigans, the way their eyes glimmered with worship when they looked at the art they were describing, the point when they ran out of words and shrugged with a wry smile as if to say, I know I'll never be able to explain fully. I know our language isn't good enough, but just look. She tries to summon that feeling now as she looks at her postcards, tries to breathe her way into the memory. The warm wooden bench under her, Georgia beside her saying, wow, under her breath and meaning it. The haziness of her painkillers dropping away for a moment of pure searing pleasure that had nothing to do with her broken body, nothing to do with herself at all. 
but here now her leg is itchy and her stomach aches. The pictures have the sheen of printed paper obscuring their surfaces and she is alone. Her heart flutters with a single shake of panic and she tugs out her earphones and sits up, rakes a hand through her hair. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. <laughs> I like it because it's just like a huge flashing neon sign to what the novel's about, mm-hmm. these pre-Raphaelite images, but also that line, agonisingly sincere. Mm. Oh, so good. Because that is this book, like it's tragic, but in the really like sincere over the top old fashioned way that Shakespeare is tragic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, huge light academia vibes, I would mm. even say. Mm. And without giving too much away, the parallels between Helen and Maeve get really, really on the nose. Like they become, their stories converge. Mm-hmm. Um, and not by coincidence, but more by the design of a family friend, a mysterious man called Stuart, who is a photographer. There's a passage much later on from Maeve which gives me chills because it echoes the prologue from Helen, mm-hmm. but instead of romanticising the way that the girls see themselves in the photos, it shows the way that a person's image can consume them. Hello, dark academia. Mm, okay. I don't think this is very spoilery to say that Stuart takes some photos of Maeve where she looks like Ophelia. Okay. In the morning, she wakes with the sheet kicked off her and her t-shirt rucked up to her waist. She curls onto her side to stare at the postcards on her wall, the models and muses, the mythic heroines, the perfume adverts. If she put up her own pictures, would they fit? Will Stuart's project go on display one day and where? She can only be so many heroines with red hair. Ophelia, Persephone, the Lady of Shalott. Even with wigs, she's not sure his project can just have one model. Who will the others be? Has he already met them? Or will he in the future? Will they be as young as her? Or cool, composed, knowing? Eventually she gets too hungry, too hot to stay in bed, and picks up an apple and a pot of the twins' pity filou from the fridge to eat with her fingers, hurrying through the front door before she's seen. The sun outside hits her like a clap, but she keeps moving, across the gravel and through the disorientating shade of the tall bushes and the trees either side of the gate, until she reaches the bright field and slips into the overgrown yellowing grasses. She pauses at the top of the field and bites into the apple, which was once crisp but is now soft and lukewarm on her tongue. It's impossible not to think of what she looks like right now, not to be both inside herself and outside watching. With her loose hair and short purple dress, long bare legs and apple held in one pale hand, she would make a good picture. Click, she thinks, blinking her eyes and imagining Stuart is somewhere further below. She trains her gaze on the woods and wonders if it's any cooler inside them, what the river will feel like when she wades into it and lies down in the water, and, with a numb kind of curiosity, what will happen to her? What will she do if Stuart doesn't come back? Mm. Oh, so angsty. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I don't really have much to say about that without giving it away, but I love like the Eve... Mm. Uh, reference with the apple. <laughs> I, I can't. I can't say anything about that. But okay. safe to say, there is definitely some dark academia vibes in mm-hmm. this, and everything is so like overt. Like there is not subtle at all, and yeah. I just love it for that. But yeah, to break up the angst, here's a random passage to finish, which has very little to do with what I've talked about, but kind of what you did. It's about the friendship between the Ophelia girls. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Because I haven't actually talked that much about them. 
Like when we unintentionally like Match. Yeah. <laughs> this is after Linda and Joan have just gone to chase someone that they think is spying on them. Okay. Linda and Joan emerged from the trees. They had leaves sticking to their legs and their hair was snarled, their cheeks pink. Here come the wild women, Sarah intoned. Linda waded through the water and crawled out towards us, lying down in a sprawl, panting. Who's got the camera? Joan asked, standing in the middle of the river. I do, Camille said, taking it from my limp grip. I risked a glance at her and she smiled at me, lopsided because of the bruise. It was too hot, I felt dizzy. I lay back and shut my eyes. The sun turned my eyelids an orange-red, revealed the tiny veins. I heard a splash. Does it matter that I'm smiling? Joan asked. Can I still be tragic and smile? Of course you can, just ask my mother, Linda murmured. Ouch, Sarah said. You know, if we're copying the painting, Camille mused, Ophelia shouldn't even be looking at the camera, at us. We should be watching her unseen. She shouldn't really be aware that she has an audience. So I don't think it matters. But the flowers, she continued, they should mean something, like in the play. Like forget-me-nots, I thought hazily, sitting up on my elbows, blinking at the light. What do roses mean? Linda asked. They mean love, obviously, Joan called out. What do all these mean? Sarah asked, holding up the bunch of flowers we'd gathered from the meadow and a few wilted stems stolen from a neighbour's garden. She gave them to Camille, who peered closer. Carnations mean different things depending on their colour. White for luck, pink for a mother's love, yellow for disappointment. I leaned over to pick up the camera she'd set down by her feet. I couldn't bear suddenly not to take a picture of her, bruised but still lovely, frowning at the bouquet in her hands, a little unsteady on her feet. She looked down at me as I adjusted the lens. She was standing too close to the sun, I thought, and the picture would be washed out with light. But I didn't want to stop her and make her move, and I couldn't move either. My body felt so heavy. Napweeds look like thistles, so I'd say they mean loyalty, bravery. Anemones mean forsaken love, death. Sweet Williams mean gallantry, noble heroic love. You should write a book about that, or start a business. Send coded messages through flowers, Sarah said. Everyone's starting a business now. We don't have to work for the man. Peter is, something to do with records. Peter was the third of the boys staying at the cottages. Hey, what do buttercups mean? Linda asked, twirling one around her fingers. I don't know. Happiness, Sarah suggested. Warm summer days. Egg yolks. Did no one bring food? Joan asked, walking over to us and shaking her head so her wet hair sprayed icy droplets. Did you have to bring that up? Linda asked. Now we're all going to get hungry. She changed into the dress that Camille had brought with her, a gown we'd decided was suitably Elizabethan, but was really more peasant sack, in which we'd all been adding bits to. Embroidery around the neck and hem, ribbons and tucks at the sleeve. It had an empire line waist that made Linda's considerable bust look jealousy inducing. After her turn, she handed the soaking wet dress to Camille to put on. <laughs> and I just, I think that passage works so well because they're all talking over each other mm -hmm. and obviously it's a bit clumsy when I'm reading it out but when you're reading it on the page like you kind of lose track of who's talking yeah yeah which is that sort of bunny effect but nice <laughs> yeah <laughs> so yeah that is pretty much it basically the book just goes from dark to light and silly to serious mm -hmm. in that way really quickly all the way through it and I think that's why I flew through it so much yeah 
and it kind of suits a story about like teenage girls in a river yeah i love that i really want to read that i think you would like it a lot yeah like <laughs> i think i would as well. I, think, I really think that you would i think that like the amount that it's just so like i said it's so into its own vibe mm-hmm. you would really enjoy it thank you Speaking of being into your own vibe, mm-hmm. for our writing chat, our question this week has been, when did you start calling yourself a writer? So I feel like other people called me a writer before I called me a writer. Like at uni, when we studied creative writing, mm. or when I had a blog for a few years before that, mm. or even when I worked on our uni magazine with you. Yes. Um, like People often called me a writer for those things. But I think I always thought like, oh, but those are just things I do mm. and writing is like part of it. So <laughs> so I think it's been quite like a recent thing yeah. and not really like a conscious thing. But probably when I started writing my novel and like for the record, that's not because a novel is like more important than other kinds of writing. But just like this novel is the most important thing I've ever written. And, and you really did it off your own back as well. Yes. Yeah. And it's the first time as well that I've thought of like writing as a career instead of just like a thing that I could do. It wasn't, yeah, like my degree or like I kind of treated the blog and the magazine as well kind of like a job. Mm. Like that's kind of how I would like view them in my head. But it's only now that I feel kind of more confident being like, oh yeah, I'm a writer. It's not just like, oh, I write things. (laughs) Yeah, like a vocation. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's my answer. Nice. What about you? I think I was the same. I thought of myself for ages as like a person who writes, mm-hmm. but or like a person who could be a writer. Mm. But um, I think my shift was like somewhere between the last year of undergrad and the first year of my masters. Yeah. But I think it was because I found writers that I now really admire: Eve Babbitts, Dolly Alderton, Olivia Gatwood. Dana Spiotta, who I haven't talked about on here, but she's a big thing. Mm. And it was because they made me hear my own thoughts on paper in a voice like mine. Mm. Like, their voices sounded a bit like my inner voice. Yeah. And so I don't think I'm someone that's very good at being brave and making statements without reassurance. So, like, that echo chamber effect Mm. was very emboldening for me. Yeah. Because I think I started to take myself as seriously as I took those women. Mm-hmm. So then I became really inspired to try and merge different forms because of things like La La Land and like the literature of Hollywood studies that we did. Mm-hmm. And I think then I was writing every day compulsively because I was like inspired a lot. Yeah. And so I think once I was putting the time into bringing an idea out, instead of because before that a lot of the time I'd just like note down an idea but never actually develop it yeah yeah but once I was like doing that then I'd say I felt like a writer yeah so it's probably yeah a couple of years ago but what and then once I started calling myself one then everyone else it was the opposite from you everyone else started calling me one mm. and it was like a self-fulfilling prophecy <laughs> <laughs> yeah I also on like a like a kind of funny or not like so our friend Steph I was talking to her the other day and she was she was trying to edit a bit of her novel and it was like a line that she couldn't get right and she asked me my opinion and she asked her family their opinion and then she like texted me later and was like actually just never ask someone who's not a writer 
to help you with you know mm. word choice because she was like because they just didn't get it and I'm like oh that's kind of a way to sort of think of yourself as a writer as someone who actually thinks about stuff like that yeah because like my family are all readers but if I went to them with like a, a writing question they wouldn't I don't think they would have an answer for me right yeah so I think that's maybe like a thing yeah, maybe like because, a writer brain is a thing. <laughs> maybe because we get like we were surrounded by fellow writers for so long, you start to forget that it's like yeah, it's not a, natural. A special thing. <laughs> <you know? laughs> yeah, I think yeah, no, that makes sense. So and yeah, I think as well though it's something that very much fluctuates because I don't all like I struggle to continue to think of myself as a writer. Yeah. Even though I'm now literally paid. <laughs> yeah. Like my job title is writer. Yeah. And I'm yeah. still like. Mm, don't know though <laughs> um but i think everyone just has that where you're like i'm yeah. not feeling it yeah do you have a quick fire favorite yeah my quick fire favorite's a podcast i don't know how many podcasts i've recommended now but it's constant i'm always listening to podcasts if we've got to this bit of ours <laughs> then we can recommend other people's it's fine so it's a podcast hosted by two uk comedians rob beckett and josh widdicombe and it's called parenting hell i'm not a parent but these are two comedians that i like so i thought like oh, i'll just give that a go mm. and it's really funny it started last year in lockdown and was about parenting in lockdown mm-hmm. and all the like challenges that come with that. But they've kept going since the lockdowns ended. And my favourite like saga, which I thought I would share, was Rob Beckett buying his daughters a trampoline for Christmas, having this game plan on like how he's going to set it up Christmas Eve. And then, as our UK listeners will remember, we were all hit with restrictions about mixing households at Christmas. So he basically, he realised he'd have no one to build a trampoline with him in the middle of the night on Christmas Eve and had to work out how to do it himself. Oh. It was a very funny few episodes, it was kids. So yeah, you don't need to like have kids or even like kids to like this podcast. Because um, <laughs> it's just certainly not. <laughs> um, as it is about like adults more than it is about kids. And they also interview other comedians and celebrities in some episodes. For example, I really liked the episodes with Peter Crouch and Abby Clancy and Chris Ramsey and Rosie Ramsey. Um, nice. So if you're looking for like a new comedic podcast, it's a good one. Nice one. <laughs> What's your quickfire favourite? My quickfire favourite this week is Halsey's new album, If I Can't Have Love, I Want Power, and the accompanying short film. Okay. So the film is 50 minutes long. So like short film, feature... Mm, it's, Kind of in between. Mm. I saw it in IMAX because I'm a geek. I drove an hour and a bit to see it. (laughs) Um, And it is like an extended, ridiculously high production music video. So the story of it is it follows this widowed queen in like medieval Bavaria or something. Mm -hmm. Like there's trees, there's snow. Mm. And she's under suspicion of killing her husband, the king. But after his death, she discovers that she's pregnant so the court can't execute her or even try her mm. for his alleged murder until she has birthed the possible heir. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> there's like castles and horses and carriages and there's like a witch in the woods um, and there's like bathhouses and guillotines. And like, oh, it's fucking wild. But the album itself is, I mean, it goes with the aesthetic, but it is classic Halsey pop punk alt rock type stuff Mm -hmm. 
if anyone listened to her last album, Manic, Manic is a lot softer, which I enjoyed. But this one is sonically really like powerful, as you can imagine from the title. Lots of drums, which is always fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that I would just read out some of my favourite banging lines from this album. <laughs> one is, Jesus needed a three-day weekend to sort out all his bullshit and figure out the treason. <laughs> which, <laughs> which we love. There's this one from The Lighthouse, which is a song reimagining a siren song. Mm, that's um, cool. But the siren has been unwillingly abandoned in the middle of the sea. Okay. And that's what's made her a monster. Right, okay. And it's, I met a sailor on a ship with promise in his eyes. He kissed me on the mouth and dug his fingers in my thighs. But a sailor ain't a saviour because they only tell you lies. So I left him there till the sunrise. While the waves were tall and they were crashing down, laying in the water, begging God to let him drown. So I showed him all my teeth and then I laughed out loud. Because I never wanted saving, I just wanted to be found. (laughs) And then the third one is a nice one. This one is about her child who she recently had. The song is called Ya'a Burney, which translates to You Will Bury Me. But it's like in a nice way. Mm. So it's... I can't decide if I love you more in the morning or I love you more at night. With its luminous lux tides, maybe in the daylight, all its pretty madness and the complicated status because the moon don't pick sides and the sun won't resign until you're by my side. Aww. I just... The moon don't pick sides and the sun won't resign. Oh, so <laughs> satisfying. Anyway, I'm going to stop going on because I'm going to end up quoting the whole album. But it's really good and I'd recommend the film. That's it. Nice. I like that that's a thing that like artists are doing. It's mm-hmm. like these feature films. Like I really liked Machine Gun Kelly's like for his last album and mm. stuff. Like it's got like a narrative to it. And I liked cool. Dodie's thing with all of her little like car oh, vignettes yeah, yeah, yeah. and things like that. Maybe like like I I'm really excited for live music to come back, but I do feel like not every album is a concert album. No. And sometimes no. like a film might be better. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Do you have no, no it's me. It's me. <laughs> do you have a route for us? Yeah, but hang on because I need to get a book. So I haven't done an actual route. Because Ophelia Girls made me think of an Olivia Gatwood poem that I like. Mm. And I don't think I've shared it on here. But okay. it just really goes okay. with Ophelia Girls. So you're getting this instead of a root. That's <laughs> fine. My insight weirdly goes with Ophelia Girls, even though I've not read that book. So How strange. Yeah. This poem is by Olivia Gatwood and it is called When I Say That We Are All Teen Girls. When I say that we are all teen girls, what I mean is that when my grandmother called to ask why I didn't respond to her letter, all I heard was, why didn't you text me back? Why don't you love me? And how can I talk about my grandmother without also mentioning that if everyone is a teen girl, then so are the birds. They're soaring cliques, they're squawking throats. And the sea, of course the sea, it's moody push and pull the way we drill into it, fill it with our trash, take and take and take from it. And still, it holds us each time we walk into it. What is more teen girl than not being loved, but wanting it so badly that you accept the smallest crumb and call yourself fool? What is more teen girl than my father's favourite wrench? It's eternal loyalty and willingness to loosen the most stubborn of bolts. What is more teen girl than my mother's chewed nail beds, than the whine of the floorboards in her house? What is more teen girl than my dog Jack? 
whose bark is shrill and unnecessary, who has never once stopped a burglar or healed on command, but sometimes when I laugh, his tail wags so hard it thumps against the wall. Sometimes it sounds like a heartbeat. Sometimes I yell at him for talking too much for his messy room. Sometimes I put him in pink striped polos and I think he feels pretty. I think he likes to feel pretty. I think Jack is a teen girl. And the mountains, all oh, the mountains, what teen girls they are, those colossal show-offs, and the moon glittering and distant and dictating all of our emotions. My lover's tender but heavy breath while she sleeps is a teen girl, how it holds me and keeps me awake all at once, how sometimes I wish to silence it until she turns her body and the room goes quiet and suddenly I want it back. Imagine the teen girls gone from our world and how quickly we would beg for their return. How grateful we would be then for their loud enthusiasm and ability to make a crop top out of anything. Even the men who laugh their condescending laughs when a teen girl faints at the sight of her favourite pop star, even those men are teen girls. The way they want so badly to be big and important and worshipped by someone. Pluto, teen girl, and her rejection from the popular universe, and my father, a teen girl, who insists he doesn't believe in horoscopes, but wants me to tell him about the best traits of a Scorpio. I tell him we're all just teen girls, and my father, having raised me, recounts the time he found the box of love notes and condom wrappers I hid in my closet, all of the bloody sheets, the missing socks, the radio blaring over my pitchy sobs, the time I was certain I would die of heartbreak and in a moment was in love with a small new boy. And of course, there are the teen girls, the real teen girls, huddled on the subway after school, limbs draped over each other's shoulders, bones knocking an awkward wind chime, and all of the commuters who plug in their headphones to mute the giggle, silence the gaggle and squeak, not knowing where they learned to do this, to roll their eyes and turn up the music, not knowing where they learned this palpable rage, not knowing the teen girls are our most distinguished professors who teach us to bury the burst until we close our bedroom doors and then cry with blood in the neck, foot through the door, face in the pillow for the teen girls who teach us to scream. I loved that. It's one of my favourite pieces of poetry. That's so good. <laughs> she obviously reads it better and there is a video of Olivia Gatwood reading it on the internet. I will but, link it in the show notes. Um, but it is also fun to read out loud. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I loved that. What's your insight? Okay, so this is spooky. For a writing project, I've been researching the meanings or symbolism behind flowers. <laughs> so. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, <laughs> lots of cultures have meanings attributed to certain flowers. Uh, but the reason I first heard of this being a thing is because also I studied Victorian literature and in the Victorian era people would send messages through bouquets of flowers. Mm -hmm. So today I thought I would share some flower meanings with you. Just ones that I think are very specific and that's mm -hmm. why I love them. So yeah, you can either like give these to someone to signal your intentions or wear them on yourself to portray a certain message. So, but I don't think any of the ones I have were ones that you mentioned in the Ophelia Girls. Can I just say I want to bring this tradition back? Yeah, it's great. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So we've got Jasmine, which is an unconditional and eternal love. Oh, that's a nice one. You had some Jasmine earlier. I I did have Jasmine earlier <laughs> for reasons. The rain flower, which I didn't know was a flower that existed, uh, but that has three meanings. 
and I like all three of them. You've got I Love You Back, I Will Never Forget You, and I Must Atone For My Sins. (laughs) (laughs) That's just, that flower has to be in atonement. Possibly. If it's not, they've missed a trick. (laughs) We have Columbine, which is the emblem of deceived lovers. Well. (laughs) I know. A tansy. Oh, I like those. I declare war on you. Yes. <laughs> Witch hazel. Mm-hmm. A magic spell. Yeah. We've got green carnations, uh, which has two meanings. Connected, though. So green carnations are the secret symbol of followers of Oscar Wilde, or to signal love between two men. Yep. <laughs> green carnations are for the gays. Also, purple violets, daydreaming, or love between two women. So there you go. And my last one is... Oh, I just love this. It's asphodel. I don't know mm. that flower. But uh, the meaning is, my regrets follow you to the grave. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> I just love how specific they are. So good. Wait, violets is making me think now, because like, roses are red, violets are blue. There are different, yeah. like, the different colour violets, violets have different, different meanings. Okay, yeah. that's... Oh, oh. <laughs> My regrets will follow you to the <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, right. Why, why are they following someone else? That's very sinister. <laughs> know, like, get your regrets to follow yourself. <laughs> get them in line. I know. So our question this week, submitted by Dee. <laughs> Thanks, Dee, for keeping the podcast Still going. Alive. <laughs> this man is single-handedly <laughs> keeping this podcast going. Could you all please buck up your intentions <laughs> and send us some questions? What are your three best bookish pickup lines? Can I preface this by saying that I hate pickup lines? Oh, same. And I'm also really bad at making up puns. So I have just Googled some and chosen some. I've Aww, not. Oh, you wimp. But I tr- no, I, I tried. <laughs> I tried and I can't do it. So I've found three that are the least offensively awful <laughs> to me. <laughs> mine are not, I, I have to say, mine are not my best bookish pickup lines. They are the first three bookish pickup lines that I thought of yeah. and they're crap. But. Well, I'll do mine then because I didn't do them and then you can okay. tell us yours. <laughs> so I have. If you give me your number, I'll live up to all your great expectations. Oh, right. Yeah, I hate them. I hate them all. <laughs> Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? You're hot. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. One. That's an all right one. <laughs> I believe in the importance of being earnest, so I'm going to say it. I'm wild about you. I have an Oscar Wilde one too. <laughs> and those are my three that I didn't make up because nice. I suck. So. Well, mine are all just very, like, silly. But <laughs> my first one is, if you're the green light to my Gatsby, I'll keep you turned on all night. <laughs> are you in possession of good fortune because you look like you're in want of a wife? <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> and the third one was just, is your name Oscar because you look pretty wild? That's cool. Yeah. Like, I literally just looked along my bookshelf and was like, <laughs> what puns can I make? I know. I've Like, if I had longer than a day, I probably could have maybe eventually come up with some, but I'm not good at puns. I did write headlines for two years. Yeah. 
you have the experience. Fine. I have the experience. <laughs> I'm also not embarrassed by my own bad puns anymore because, like, <laughs> I've definitely had worse than that go on the front page of a paper. <laughs> so that was a good question, though. Thanks, Dee. I wasn't slating you. I just don't like pick up lines. Yeah, <laughs> but no, that was fun. <laughs> So that's us this week. If you have any comments or questions, then our email is infatuatedpodcast at outlook.com. We also have social media, which is linked in the show notes, along with everything we talked about today, including the infatuated mix, which has all the music we mention. <laughs> Sorry, I thought you were about to speak, so that's why I stopped. <laughs> also, please rate and review us on your podcast apps, because that helps get the podcast out there. And if you want to send us any flowers with messages, then please feel free to do that. Oh, I would love that. <laughs> I mean, you don't have our address, so like that would be a little bit creepy. Virtually. Virtually, <laughs> you could send us flowers, and that would be enough. <laughs> Bye! Bye! <laughs>